Welcome to Mormon Awakenings. My name's Jack Nanik. I hope you find something interesting here today. I want to start today by posing what's going to sound like an absurd hypothetical, but I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you're sitting around the campfire with the children of Israel, oh, 3,500 years ago, and you just got done obliterating a village, killing every man, woman, child, goat, sheep, you name it, killed. And that night you're all sitting around the campfire, roasting camel meat or lamb or whatever it is. And someone looks up and says, didn't, didn't the Lord tell Moses, thou shalt not kill? Did, didn't he in fact write that on a stone tablet for Moses? You know, I'm no genius, but we seem to be doing a lot of killing. And then someone else looks up and says, you know, I'm glad you raised that, Levi. I've been, I've been thinking that too. Are we sure we're doing the right thing? You can imagine the rest of the guys around the campfire chiming in, you know, well, you know, thou shalt not kill means I can't come up to you, Levi, in the middle of camp and stab you for no reason. But, you know, we're in battle and if we don't kill, then they're going to kill us. And this is more like self-defense, actually. You can imagine someone else saying something like, you know, these, these people living in Canaan, they're, why, they're infidels. And so the Lord wants us to cleanse the land. So this actually has nothing to do with thou shalt not kill. And besides, the Lord promised the land to us. We're the, we're the children of Abraham. You know, and you can see the group around the campfire sort of quieting down and nodding their heads and, you know, yeah, I guess, okay, that's, yeah, that makes sense. And then there's someone that just can't control himself anymore. And he stands up and says, I've been thinking about this for the last three weeks. Thou shalt not kill as thou shalt not kill. And what we're doing, this is psychotic. It's wrong and I won't do it anymore. I'm done. And then a big argument ensues. You know, what what are we supposed to do? Just lay down on our swords? Yeah, we're going to let those infidels take our land? You know, the Lord told Joshua to, to lead us into battle. I think the Lord knows what he's doing. Someone else says, well, well, the Lord told us thou shalt not kill. Well, well, he t- told you. Nah. And everyone's head is on the brink of explosion. No one can make sense of this. And they all got to get up tomorrow morning early to obliterate the next village. And nobody can get to sleep. And it's a, just a big mess. Now, this is a made up scene. Okay. This didn't really happen. I'm speculating. The background story happened. You know, the children of Israel did in the Old Testament go into Canaan and they basically wiped out everybody living there. Man, woman, child, goats, animals, everything. So that part's true. And this invasion, this slaughter happened about 40 years after Moses received the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is indeed thou shalt not kill. So the context is true, even if this specific scene probably never took place the way I described it. But I'm using this hypothetical to make a point. Sometimes what we're doing in life seems at odds with what we're supposed to be doing in life. And most of us are supposed to driven people. What are we supposed to be doing? And if it's not at the forefront of our thoughts, it's this lingering, nagging feeling that we carry around with us all the time. Is what I'm doing right? Am I supposed to be doing this? Is this a good thing? You know, would my mom approve? And if you're a religious person, in the back of your mind is always the thought, does God approve? There's this constant anxiety. Have I done things right? 
You know, have I done what I've been told to do? And thinking up convincing reasons why God, in fact, approves of what we're doing requires a fair amount of mental energy. And this mental energy is spent searching through, you know, the the catalog of God's commandments that we carry around with us in our head or shuffling through all the mitigating circumstances or justifications that we've learned over the years of our upbringing because we got to get to this conclusion God is okay with what I'm doing because, you know, there's a commandment, because there's a mitigating circumstance, or this is a good rationalization, or this is a particular special case. And there's a part of our brain that's constantly doing this in the background, 24-7. And if we can't answer that question, does God approve of what I'm doing adequately, we can't sleep at night. Some of us anyways. Others seem to have no problem sleeping no matter what they're doing, but I digress. But every now and then, we just can't come up with a good answer. And again, I think all this is happening in the back of our minds. I think there's just, I think this is going on subconsciously. There's just some part of our brain that just, you know, is doing this all the time. But however that works, every now and then that part of our brain just just can't resolve something. You know, there's all sorts of Terms to describe this state. Some are very academic, like cognitive dissonance. Some are just, you know, old school, like he's not at peace with himself. You know, that guy, Jack, he just, he's just full of inner turmoil. You know, what, what is this describing? It's describing this state where, where, where this moral gyroscope in the back of our brain can't seem to resolve our actual conduct or our actual thoughts with the supposed to's of life. What we're supposed to be doing. What we're supposed to be thinking, you know, the gyroscope is looking for some rationalization, can't find it or can't find one that's not going to make it barf. You know, it's looking for some commandment saying, well, it's, it's fine because this commandment says it's just, you know, it's just, and then the whole gyroscope breaks down. And the next thing you know, we're sitting at sacrament meeting and we have a migraine headache and we we just want to run outside and fling ourselves into the oncoming traffic. Now now I want to point out explicitly that I'm not talking about you know, truly bad behavior that if we just stopped doing this bad behavior, we'd feel better again. Okay. You know, I'm not talking about when you're embezzling money from your boss at work or or you're cheating on your spouse, you know, or, or you're not paying your taxes or, you know, you're stealing cars or something. I'm not, I'm not talking about the cognitive dissonance that comes from that. You know, the solution to that is easy. Stop doing that. Change. You know, clean up yourself. I'm talking about things that are more fundamental and foundational. And these things can vary widely because we're all so different as people. You know, so it can be as simple as, you know, believing because of your conditioning and how you grew up that, that you need to be a perfectionist. Yet, not having the energy to be that perfectionist. But you really believe you gotta be a perfectionist. But you don't have the energy. And so, you know, I'm talking about that sort of stuff. Now, that's a silly example on, on one level, but it's a very real example to those who suffer that from that. You know, or it could be something that you feel after you learn something about the history of the church or about polygamy or, you know, some of these sort of things that make you doubt, you know, foundational truth claims that are the, that are the pillar in your mind of your moral character. You know, you find out something about the church that undermines your, your testimony, if you will. And then this long string of dominoes starts to fall and you can't make sense of it. And you start doubting, you you know, what right and wrong even mean. 
because of this chain reaction. You know, I'm talking about losing faith in leadership that's supposed to be inspired. You know, when I was on my mission, I had this kind of experience when we were taught how to preach the gospel by using insurance salesman techniques. Literally, you know, we were, we were showed videos of how insurance salesmen sell insurance and we were supposed to use those techniques to sell the guy. Well, I, you know, that disturbed me that that caused this kind of cognitive dissonance. And I think all religious people who are honest, who are really trying, you know, instead of just rebelling, suffer this at some point in their lives. You know, whether you're like the LDS and you believe in the gospel of Adam or you're, you know, more like Huck Finn just sailing down the Mississippi with Jim, there comes this point in life where you, where you just can't quite get the moral gyroscope that's operating in the background of your brain to spit out the answers you want it to. And, 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 you know, and you can't say to yourself at those times, God's okay with this. And since you can't say that, you just, uh, you're just not at peace. All you're getting are error messages, error, 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 error. And that's disturbing. And if you're at that point in your life, or you've been at a point like that in your life, it's a bummer, but it's a bummer for a reason, a good reason. Because when you feel that way, it's a signal that it's time for growth. It's time for change. It's time for a new approach. You know, in the words of the East, it's time to transcend. And I I use this word transcend intentionally, even though on one level, this is really not that novel of a situation. You know, this being reaching a point where something's not working anymore and needing to change. You know, in one one sense, it's so commonsensical that it's just insultingly obvious. You know, something's not working anymore. Well, why don't you try something different? And in most spheres of life, this is an easy thing to do. Try something different, that is. You know, that wrench you're using doesn't seem to take the lug nuts off the tire you're trying to change. Here, here, try this wrench. It's a little bigger. Your girlfriend, Molly, she just makes you sad and makes you feel bad about yourself. Why don't you break up with her and try dating Janine? But trying something different in the sphere that's so existential to us as our basic conditioning, our moral code, our sense of what's right and wrong or what, what makes us worthy for the guidance of the spirit or what makes us worthy to go to heaven after we die instead of hell, you know, in that sphere, it's qualitatively more difficult to try something new than than it is to just swap out your lug nut wrench because that stuff is kind of our inner operating system. And the costs of failure, at least in our own minds, can be massive and eternal. And if you're LDS, there's an additional complicating factor and that's this idea of enduring to the end. My grandmother used to always say, you just have to endure to the end. You know, which which kind of gives us this vibe that life's really more like, you know, a, a long, long trek across some long, desolate space. And it's going to be physically arduous. And you just got to keep going like the marathon or at mile you know, 18, you just got to keep running. You know, we have images in our community that reinforce this, you know, cling to the rod. They'll you get you through those mists of darkness, you know, and this puts a premium on loyalty as a fundamental good in and of itself. 
loyalty and fidelity, almost to the point where it, it doesn't even matter to what you're being loyal to. We just want to see if you'll cling to the rod and endure to the end. And clinging and loyalty and endurance, well, that's what you're going to be graded on, period. Don't think about any of those underlying principles or doctrines. That's not important. You're not smart enough to think about that. Just try to get an A on this test. If you do, you know, here's your ticket to the celestial kingdom. So when you're having an existential crisis about something, which is which is hard enough as an isolated experience, but you also believe this endurance-based, no pain, no gain kind of thing, this, this endure to the end as a fundamental good thing, Sometimes you tend to just, you know, grit your teeth and grin and bear it. And you're just going to get through it somehow. But that can just make it worse and can prolong it and, and can really produce even more bizarre outcomes than the existential crisis itself. I mean, let's take a look at our own history. Let's look at the priesthood ban, for example. This is something that went on for decades, even though a lot of people inside the church found this strange. It didn't compute for them. But we clung to that for a long, long time as an institution because we were afraid if we were to overturn that ban that somehow we were letting go of the rod of iron or we were not enduring to the end. So instead of getting rid of this practice when we should have, we doubled down on it via Bruce R. McConkie and Mormon doctrine, which labeled all people of African descent, the, you know, the progeny of Cain, the first murderer. You know, so, so in this instance, enduring to the end produced a, a, a strange outcome. Worse in some ways than the original existential crisis. I mean, it's one thing to ban African, people of African descent from having the priesthood. It's quite another to pile on by calling an entire race of people the, de- the descendants of Cain. You know, the worst guy in the Old Testament period. Now we admit all this today and everything's fine in the end. You know, by our own essays, we admit that the priesthood ban was uninspired and not doctrine. So it worked out fine in the end. But this culture of endurance and loyalty complicated that decision and delayed it. And it can do that for us as individuals, too, when we face our own proverbial wall. And I raise this whole story about the priesthood ban and doubling down on all this because... When your own internal gyroscope is not producing the results that you want, it's not always helpful to double down and become more orthodox or to become more loyal to to the very ideas that are causing the cognitive dissonance in the first place. And I'm not trying to bash loyalty or grit or endurance or any of those things. Those things can be important. They can be really good, but they're not good or important independently out in space. They're only as good as the underlying things they're connected to. Endurance is great if your methodology is sound. It's good to endure and have grit. But if your methodology is unsound, if you're using the wrong wrench to try to change the lug nuts on your tire, endurance is insanity. And when it gets to the point of insanity for, for our institution or for us as individuals, it blinds us to something else in our doctrine or in our personal conditioning that could be very liberating, and that's progress and the notion of eternal progress. In fact, the way I was taught is damnation is merely the cessation of progress. You're only damned once you stop progressing. Well, you can't progress 
without change. And you can't change unless you let go or discard the old and add in and start using the new. And again, you're not just doing this to get rid of the old and put in the new. You're putting in the new because it's presumably better. You know, you're not chucking everything that's old, just just the old stuff that isn't working. A lot of the old stuff still does work. But if it doesn't, you got to get rid of it and bring in something new. That's change. That's progress. And again, on one level, in some spheres of life, this is so obvious that it, that it's insulting. You know, this is no great revelation. You know, but, but when it's your existential core, you know, your fundamental framework and operating system, you know, the idea of progress then becomes transcendent and liberating indeed. Now, I'll be the first to admit that change can be just as dangerous as endurance or loyalty. And change, like endurance and loyalty, is not a fundamental good independently out in space. Whether change is good or bad depends entirely on the context and the underlying situation. And it takes a little wisdom and some experience to know when it's time to change. That's why at the very beginning of this episode, I took great pains to say, look, if you're just in a, in a state of immature juvenile rebellion, seeking to rationalize fundamentally bad behavior, then you're not having an existential crisis. You're just being a jerk. You know, you're being immature and selfish and a baby and, and you need to, you know, clean up your act. You know, you, you frankly need a little more orthodoxy. But if you're honest with yourself and you're really trying to do the right thing and you're really trying to do the should of's of life and you're really trying to understand God's purposes and you got a few miles on the odometer, I think you can handle change. And you can say to yourself, honestly, I think God's okay if I make this particular change. I think God's okay if I think a little bit differently about this doctrine, this policy, this leader. I think God's okay if I incorporate a little Eastern thought into my practices. Or if I go to the psychiatrist and get some meds for my perfectionism. In fact, I think God's more than okay with that. I think he would really like me to transcend my current existential crisis. I think he wants the gyroscope in the back of my mind to work again, but he knows it needs a few additional lines of code to make that happen. And I may or may not find this additional code inside my community, and I think God's okay with that. I still just may be celestial kingdom material. And this may really feel, particularly at the early stages of this type of transcendence, that you're somehow letting go of the rod or that you're quitting or something like that or being disloyal. And when that happens, you need to think about eternal progress because eternal progress is not eternal conservatism. Eternal progress is not mere obedience. And we can know this by looking at our own scriptures, at our own history. Let's take the allegory of the vineyard, for example. This is an allegory given by Jacob about a master and a servant who go to tend to an olive tree that had gotten a little old, a little leggy, and wasn't producing any more fruit. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds like someone having an existential crisis to me, in symbolic terms, of course. And how do they revive this tree? 
Well, I'll tell you what they don't do. They don't go up to the tree and they say, you need to just endure a little more. You need to repent, get a little more orthodox. What's wrong with you? No, instead, they, they actually hack the olive tree down to the roots. They start chopping off all the things that just are superfluous and just aren't important. Cultural things, things of our conditioning. And then they graft in some wild branches. Well, what does that represent? In my own view, that represents new ideas. And they're wild. And this paradoxically stimulates the old olive tree and revives it and it starts producing good fruit again. And this cycle happens a couple times inside the allegory. You know, and so we can have these crises from time to time or about specific things that differ over time. And sometimes we need, you know, to become more orthodox and sometimes we need to be a little bit more wild. But the, but the master's the one guiding us. And that requires some faith, of course. But, but that's, but that's kind of what I'm talking about. That in my mind is transcending this existential crisis. And that's taught inside our own scriptures. You know, you can also look at our own history, which, which is replete with the cycles of transcendent, transcending the old for the new, beginning with Joseph Smith's question. You know, are you okay with me? Where am I going to find the truth? Which was really what Joseph Smith was asking. Am I doing things right? What's the right way? Continual change and transcendence has just been the consistent part of LDS history. You know, some people don't believe that. But but whenever I run into people who don't believe that, I, I just point out a couple things. The first is, 150 years ago, the most prominent people in the in the LDS church had beards, drank whiskey, were polygamists, believed in the Adam-God theory, and blood atonement. Today... You know, if you showed up to church on Sunday with your six wives in tow, your beard, your whiskey, and you started preaching blood atonement, you know, the, the congregants would, you know, think you're an alien. They, they wouldn't even know what you're talking about. That's how different today's church is from the form of the church 150 years ago. Well, how, how did that happen? Cycles and cycles of existential crisis, transcendence, progress. From this perspective, Dieter F. Uchtdorf was spot on when he said the restoration is ongoing. Don't miss it. Now, I personally have a lot of transcending of the old to, to do still, lots of it. But I've also been through a few cycles. And for me, the first cycle of existential crisis I, oddly happened on my mission. And, and I referred to it early in the episode when we were being taught to preach the gospel the same way an insurance salesman sells life insurance. And I walked away from a zone conference where we were shown videos on, on selling techniques, thinking, wait a second, I've quit school and left my girlfriend and I'm spending all my savings to do this, you know, to sell life insurance. And it raised all sorts of other existential questions like, if the gospel's so great, why do I need to trick people into it? You know, why do I have to use manipulative sales, salesy techniques to effectively close the deal, you know, on, on some unsuspecting, you know, person? How, how does that make any sense at all? And for me, it didn't for a couple months. You know, so I thought about that. You know, I also complained about it with some of my companions and housemates. You know, they didn't want to hear that. Then I got this book in the mail from someone at home 
And I can't even remember if the book was about, you know, German soldiers in World War II or, you know, factory workers in America. I can't remember the specifics. But the basic message was, boy, it sure is tough to be a foot soldier in someone else's army. You know, it's it's hard to execute the plans of others when those others are so obviously flawed. And it was talking about this not inside a church context. You know, it's the army or it was a factory, it was a company or something. Well, it wasn't a church book. You know, and according to the rules of the mission, it was a wild branch indeed. But it shifted my thinking. You know, and this insurance salesman tactic, this scheme that, you know, somebody, some higher up thought was a good idea, took on a whole new meaning for me. Suddenly there was, there were a few more lines of code in the old moral gyroscope in the back of my head. And I realized that it really wasn't at all about the gospel that, you know, what the gospel's truthfulness or not was an independent issue altogether. And, And whether it was a good idea I came on a mission or not was, was not the issue at hand. The issue at hand was some leaders are stupid, you know, and stupid leaders are a bummer for their underlings. And this has always been since the dawn of time. And this is always, no matter what sphere you're in, religious, business, army, whatever it is, government, you know, if you have a stupid leader, yet you still have a job to do, sometimes you got to get a little creative. Now, I, I say that in a harsh way, and I'm trying to be very black and white and clear about it. I mean, I don't think that my, my leaders, whoever thought up this insurance salesman plan, I don't think that they were really stupid. But my point is that, you know, that's part of life. Imperfection abounds and all people are going to, all of God's children are going to experience this. And you can sit back and gripe about it or you can get creative. Well, that, you know, that was profoundly insightful to me as a missionary, you know, at 19 or 20, it gave me an ability to transcend something that was nutty and dysfunctional and not working. You know, and I didn't go out and try to sell the gospel like you'd sell insurance. Yet I still felt like I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. And I didn't feel like going and throwing Molotov cocktails at the mission home in the process. No, on one level, this, as I, as, even as I'm telling this story, on one level, I think this is just a dumb, you know, such an obvious solution to, to, to a dumb problem. But that's where I was in life, and that's how the moral gyroscope was working, and that was the step of progress I needed to make. And I was being guided by the master in making that change and growing. And I was not being disloyal, and I was not letting go of the rod. You know, I could have at that juncture said, this is crap. This is garbage. I'm going to go out and, you know, start dating that hot chick in the ward. I could have served, I could have been self-destructive. We see that a lot. Or I could have doubled down. These leaders are inspired. I will go and sell the gospel as the Lord commands by, by using insurance salesman techniques. But then I think I would have spent a lot of time thinking of why doubling down was okay. And I might have thought of a bunch of, you know, kooky quasi-doctrines akin to people of African descent being the descendants of Cain. You know, I might have imagined, well, you you got to use these hard closing techniques because, well, all these people outside the church were less valiant in the preexistence, so they're clearly dumber than I am, so I better trick them into it. How else are they going to get to heaven? You know, that's akin to saying all people of African descent are you know, descendants of Cain or Ham or, you know, whatever it is. 
That's why denying them the priesthood is, is a good thing. So this book I received really liberated me, enabled me to progress a little bit as a person. And maybe I felt a little worried about letting go of the rod when I first started reading it, but it was so liberating, you know, and the air messages in my brain started going away that I just, I just didn't care anymore. You know, I'd almost gotten to the point where I said, you know, if, th- if this is the way God does things, I, I don't care. I don't want to do them that way. And I'm going to go so far as to say, I don't think God cares if you say that when you're having an existential crisis. I think he actually gets closer to you if you're really trying to figure things out and progress. No, it didn't entirely take away the pain of working with leaders that I found difficult. That was still a difficult thing. There was still something that was a bummer about that. But but inside, I was at peace about it. I felt the freedom to to say, well, these people are flawed, and I can't do anything about it. I just got to surrender to it. You know, and be as creative as I can to, to do what I think is right. And what was really interesting, maybe the most profound lesson of all was over time a lot of other people started to feel this way about the insurance salesman techniques and the program just sort of died out and everybody sort of came out of the closet and said yeah we thought that was dumb too well that was really affirming you know think how people must have felt when finally polygamy was banned or think how must have people felt when finally we're going to get rid of the priesthood ban or when a certain stake president is released, someone that people found very difficult. You know, the collective relief that we feel when we when we grow as a group is very affirming, isn't it? And it gives us a little more confidence for the next existential crisis that we are going to have about something. We can say to ourselves, you know, I bet I bet I'm not the only person who feels this way. I bet I'm not alone in thinking this way. Even though no one feels empowered to say anything now, maybe I don't even, but I can, you know, somehow internally have a little peace, you know, and I can get creative about things and I can, and I can move forward. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting today until next time.